Hi, this is Matthew Reinhardt, the creator of the Game of Thrones, a pop-up guide to Westeros, and you're listening to Podcast Winterfell. This is a spoiler alert. This podcast is currently re-watching Season 3 of Game of Thrones, but we will be discussing it in the context of the most recently aired episode of Game of Thrones. That would be Season 4, Episode 10. So if you're not current with the series and you don't want to be spoiled of events in Season 4, you may want to avoid listening to this podcast until you are current. And if you are current, of course, we hope you enjoy the podcast. Dedicated to HBO's Game of Thrones and George R.R. Martin's Song of Ice and Fire book series, you're listening to Podcast Winterfell. And now, here's your host, Matt Murdock. Hey, welcome to Podcast Winterfell, where this week we are re-watching Season 3, Episode 9, entitled The Reigns of Castamere, written by David Benioff and Dan Weiss, the showrunners, and directed by David Nutter, who returns to the series. Um, David Nutter is an incredible director, um, and he's he's had a hand in a few episodes of Game of Thrones as well as many great series. Seems like uh, I think he directed the pilot of Supernatural as well. Um, anyway, my name is Matt Murdick. I am from com, and that's where you can find all of our social media and contact information. You can find back episodes of the podcast in streaming or downloadable form. And you can find podcatcher links, all that good stuff. So if you have a moment... Follow some of those podcatcher links and leave me a review either on iTunes or Stitcher or subscribe on either of those platforms, especially on iTunes. Your written reviews uh, where you leave comments, not just stars, help me stay more noticeable to other great Game of Thrones fans just like yourself. And when we have more people listening, then the better the conversation. As always, to be part of that conversation, you can feel free to contact the podcast regarding any of these episodes of Season 3. Due to my schedule, of course, I'm pre-recording these episodes, so I won't be able to include your feedback each week or any of the iTunes thanks here. But uh, any of the feedback that you have for Season 3, if you get it to me by no later than February 2nd, 2015, at midnight your time, wherever that is in the world then we will have a special feedback episode coming out to include what you had to say about any of these Season 3 episodes, just like we did for the first five episodes, 1 to 5. Now you actually can comment on any of the episodes, but uh, the 6 through 10 would probably be most relevant to what we're covering right now. Anyway, uh, don't have any news or anything like that in regards to these podcasts. But I do include a news section at the beginning of each of our Feast Dance Tandem Read episodes uh, that is TV-friendly. And that's before we talk about any of the book stuff. So if you're a TV-only watcher and you've not read any of the books, you're still safe to listen to those episodes through the news section. And then we don't uh, 
Uh, we'll give you plenty of warning before we start talking about potential spoilers. Also, if you leave a review for me on iTunes or Stitcher before February 2nd, 2015, I'm giving away a set of uh, Season 4, either Blu-rays or DVDs of your choice. Anyone who has left me a review, and that goes all the way back to the beginning of the podcast, if you've left a review for the podcast um, February 2nd, 2015 or prior, then you get you are automatically entered to win uh, your chance to choose between Blu-rays or DVDs of Season 4, which will be coming out later that month in February. So I'll let you know more about that uh, as we get closer to the date. In the meantime, I guess that's enough about the podcast. Let's get right into talking about Season 3, Episode 9, uh, The Reigns of Castamere, The Red Wedding Episode, again, Written by David Benioff and Dan Weiss and directed by the fabulous David Nutter. The Screenshot, an analysis of this week's episode. I'm actually kind of glad, in a way, that this episode opens with Rob and Catelyn so that I can kind of follow that storyline all the way through right off the bat. And get it over with, because this episode is really very hard to talk about still, for me, emotionally. It, it's hard to go back and rewatch just on an emotional level, and how brutal and surprising uh, for many of us. I hadn't read Storm of Swords yet, so I didn't know what the Red Wedding was. And uh, it's just tragic and, and shocking, and, and um, I'm kind of going to be glad to get it out of the way. Uh, don't get me wrong, it's 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 amazing television, but I, I don't know if I really want to go back and dwell on the emotional aspect of this episode, um, because not only is it still uncomfortable to talk about in that particular context, but I, I believe that as far as our feelings went in regards to this episode, we, we covered that emotional gamut pretty well. Uh, when we podcasted on the first time watching it. So I don't think that there's too much more that you can add on it, except to say that uh, it is still uncomfortable. It's still shocking. It's still horrific. It's still terribly, terribly sad. Um, you get the whole idea of guest rights being violated. And there's been hints about, um, you know, what guest rights are throughout the season, up to this point, and I, I like how those little bits were layered in, which uh, kind of points to the horrificness of what Walder Frey does here, uh, because uh, here you see in several episodes Danny having people come and, and they're kind of under her being her guests, um, and she doesn't get any bodily harm to them. It doesn't mean she doesn't threaten them. Uh, the guy from Yonkai, she threatened pretty well, but she didn't... Uh, she didn't, you know, stab Nero uh, in the back or anything like that when uh, all of the second sons were on their way out the door. Not the same way Walder Frey does here. And in the next episode, of course, Bran will tell us how the gods look at violating guest rights with the story about the rat cook, right? So um, it seems uh, that uh, our our villains of this story have really done an atrocity as far as Westerosi ethics go. And of course now 
we know exactly who the villains are and, and what the planning was done thanks to the season finale of season three. Uh, since we're looking at this from a rewatch perspective, you have uh, Walder Frey, of course, who becomes apparent in this episode. He's revenging against Rob for not marrying one of his daughters. And also apparent in this episode, Bruce Bolton, of course, who stands to gain the seat in the North if the Starks are defeated because he has evidently been promised by Tywin Lannister of such a thing when we learn about Tywin Lannister in the next episode. But uh, it makes all of that letter writing that we've seen prior in the season uh, really stick out, doesn't it? And you have to wonder which of those letters were to Roose Bolton, which ones to, were to Walder Frey, which ones were to other people. Um, kind of fun to, to try and go back and trace all of that stuff once you get to this point in the series. You know, we've all expressed our hatred <laughs> for this trio of guys uh, because of the atrocity of the event. And... and now we've seen one of them in Tywin kind of get their comeuppance in a way, although maybe Tywin had his comeuppance for a number of things uh, that Tywin did, uh, including the way he treated Tyrion or the way he even treated his other two children. There's still a lot of hatred to focus, though, even on, on Walder Frey, who we don't know what he's up to right now. Uh, Roose Bolton seems to be doing pretty well. Right now, now that Molt Kalen has been uh, taken back and uh, by his son and and with the help of Theon, we just have to kind of hope, I guess, since we're still harboring that hatred uh, for Bolton and and uh, Walder Frey, that maybe somewhere down the line we'll get some vengeance for that as well. Um, okay, so with that out of the way. Uh, there are a couple of things that we might address about the results of this particular storyline in the context of the now being season four. And I'll start with the way that uh, some people have said that maybe this particular wedding might have been a catalyst for the purple wedding, which, of course, ended Joffrey's life in the television show. And uh, in the seventh episode of Mockingbird in season four, before Littlefinger uh, does his creepy kiss on Sansa, um, he alludes to her that Joffrey's death might have been needed partially in response for the killing of Sansa's mother, Catelyn. Now, of course, we know that Littlefinger seemingly adored Catelyn, greatly loved her, so he says, but I started off this point with the fact that Littlefinger kisses Sansa right after the discussion about retribution for Catelyn. So you're kind of at a tie between that idea that Littlefinger actually cared for Catelyn so much that he made Joffrey pay for the sins of the Lannister involvement in this Red Wedding. Or you might say that Littlefinger had the Purple Wedding planned all along anyway um, because he likes... The idea, you know, he said arranging for the ascension of, of King Tommen, it was something that he said to Liza as well. Was it was it something that he really did have planned all along in his whole string of chaotic events? You know, he does love his chaos. Um, and would he think that the fact that he twisted it to make it sound like it was for Catelyn to Sansa, is that some kind of way of earning some kind of creepy, weird 
brownie points with her before making a move on her. I mean, that that whole thing just is just weird, right? Littlefinger says, well, I did it to revenge your mother, but kiss me now. Uh, it's one. Of, <laughs> it's just weird. It's just weird. But that's you know you could say if if little if you take Littlefinger at his word in that moment. I don't know if we should ever take Littlefinger totally at his word, but there has been times when he's admitted to Catelyn that he loves her uh, back in season two and stuff. So where Catelyn's involved, maybe he's a little more truthful. So you can say, well, then maybe the purple wedding was a result of this red wedding. Um. I think the key thing to work out uh, is perhaps to allow for the scenario that both might uh, be involved in one way or another. That maybe he had a plan to kill Joffrey, but it became more prevalent because of the Red Wedding. Um, What you have to think about, though, is the Tyrells. And their involvement in the Purple Wedding. Because remember that Littlefinger left King's Landing long before either the Red Wedding or the Purple Wedding. And he returned and sat out in the boat. You know, um, well, I guess he was in town, sort of. He was in a harbor uh, during the Purple Wedding. But he, he wasn't really there. So... I don't know whether to think that this implies that the plans for the Purple Wedding were already in play before Littlefinger left the capital, or were the plans made perhaps by correspondence at some point later after Littlefinger left town. Um, Only if it's the latter can we definitively say that Littlefinger might have planned the Purple Wedding with the Tyrells in response to the Red Wedding, right? Because uh, if he had made the deal with the Tyrells before he left, then obviously the Red Wedding hadn't happened. And I'm not sure that Littlefinger would have been privy to Tywin's letter writing. Um, But also remember that Littlefinger was trying to get Sansa out from King's Landing before he left to go see Lysa. And I think at that time... um, the Tyrells had tried to get a plan to marry Sansa to Marjorie's brother, uh, Loras. And I think Sansa actually refused Littlefinger's help for that reason, if I recall right. So there's, there's definitely a chance that the later correspondence set up the Purple Wedding um, in response to the Red Wedding. Or they could be totally unrelated. Uh, it'd be very interesting to hear your thoughts about that. Now, if you put the things in context with the Tyrells themselves, uh, they had learned, of course, at the beginning of the season that Joffrey is a monster. They learned that from Sansa. Uh, And when Tywin makes the play to marry Tyrion to Sansa, of course, they do find themselves with their backs up against the wall. Um, I still think that the question remains, um, when did Littlefinger and the Tyrells come to an agreement about what to do about Joffrey and that will tell you whether it was a response to the Red Wedding or whether it was just a plan in place. So again, let me know what you think about all of that. Um, You spent a lot of time focusing on the Purple Wedding during the Red Wedding episode. Notice how I'm dodging the bullet. 
but there there are other questions that even as of the end of season four haven't been yet answered in, in terms of you know I I don't know if we even will get answered uh, and if we do I don't know when we'll get them like for instance we know the Fraser holding Edmure right that's what uh, Walder and Bruce were discussing. Um, I guess, uh, in the next episode when they're kind of reveling in the red wedding. Um, so are they still holding Edmure? Have they killed him? Where is Edmure? Um, what about Edmure's uncle, Brendan Blackfish Tully, who was a very likable character. He went off to go to the bathroom and never came back. Um, so what happened to him during the red wedding? Did he escape? Did he die? Was he a party to what was going on? Um, if he didn't die, where is he? And will we ever see him again? And now in the context of season four, there is also the question of the future of the Stark family name itself. Um, or perhaps the Stark line itself. Because yeah, after this episode, you have Rob is dead, Catelyn is dead, um, Brandon and Rickon are believed dead by just about everyone, um, except the Boltons know that they're not. But obviously with the dispatching of Locke to find them, it, it seems uh, that they had the intentions of rectifying the fact that the boys had lived. Um, Jon Snow, of course, lives, but he is basically sworn to an oath that will prevent him from taking lands or titles or wives. So he's not going to be able to promote the Stark air uh, or the Stark line. Um, then you have the girls, of course. Um, they can further the bloodline, but they can't really further the name line of the Starks. Um, and I don't know. There doesn't seem to be any indication to me as of the end of season four that they have any intention of carrying out um, all of that. I mean, Sansa thinks about Winterfell um, in season four, but, um, the last time we see her, she's completely changed her appearance and she's seemingly thrown herself into this role of, of Littlefinger's daughter slash lover slash weird. I don't know what's going on there, but at any rate, she's not being Sansa Stark, uh, by any stretch, even though she did admit it, um, to, uh, that, uh, gang that wanted to, I guess, string Littlefinger up for Lysa's death. Then you have Arya, who's kind of off on a boat to somewhere distant, and, and who knows if she'll even ever return to Westeros. Um, like I said before, Bran and Rickon are believed dead by most people, but of course we know that they are alive. But Bran is so far north of the Wall. I mean, he's I kept living under some tree, I guess. So the thing to ask is, is Rickon the only one that we can realistically pin our hopes to in regards to restoring both maybe Winterfell and the Stark family name at this point? Um, doesn't seem, like I said, doesn't seem like there are any other real candidates other than Rickon. And if that is the case, I mean, where the heck is he in OSHA? Where, where did they go? Uh, we know they took off maybe towards the Umbers. Who knows where they are now? Um, it'll be fun to find out. Maybe someday we'll find out where they are. Who knows? Um, but those are all kind of things to ponder 
when relating this particular episode and the result of the Red Wedding um, to the Stark future, so to speak. Uh, so I think uh, you know, there's some worry there. The family has all been but been destroyed um, in name and heirs, um, or at least uh, people who would be willing to be heirs, because it doesn't seem like, again, Arya is willing to be or Sansa is willing to be. Um, Rickon probably would be willing to be. I don't think Bran's very willing to be. John, his hands are tied. All kind of things to think about. And I'm not really not going to talk about uh, the Red Wedding itself. Like I said before at the top of this podcast, I, I think that those are the thoughts looking forward uh, to have about the event itself. And just to hate, to hate the fact that, um, you know, you invest so much time in these characters and then you can logically see how their mistakes have have led to this in some ways. But... You hate to see it happen to them. You hate the people who did it to them. And uh, that's enough emotion uh, for me about that. So let's move on to Danny, And she's in Yunkai. And, of course, the flirtation between her and Dario is continuing. You know, that's something that we know pans out, at least sexually, uh, for them in Season 4. There's obviously also some Jorah frustration, uh, seeing how they seem to be kind of flirty in this episode. Um, but he tries to keep it to himself. He doesn't ever let that really manifest itself publicly, uh, until season four. And he kind of shows a little bit of disapproval about Danny and Dario once he finds out that they've been together. Um, even though he tries to hide it within, you know, other reasoning, but you know, it's jealous Jorah, um, poor old Jorah, the old perv. Uh, that's what I've been calling him in the book podcast. Uh, I, I get a lot of trouble about the trouble that I give Jorah. Jorah is a good guy, but um, I don't know. Maybe he's just out of his league with Daenerys. Maybe that. Maybe that's what's going on there. Of course, he really makes his feelings for her public when, when she banishes him, which is, of course, too little, too late. Way to go, Jorah. I really beat on Jorah too much. Uh, I apologize, but... Uh, I do have to say that for this episode on a first watch, uh, and maybe even this time around, I, I was a little bit surprised about how quickly um, Danny let Dario into that war council circle. I mean, clearly he's got good information about the city, but if I was Danny, he, he'd just flip sides. You know, he'd kill two guys and flip sides. I'm not sure that I would trust him uh, yet enough to include him uh, in the attack of Young Kai. I don't know. Would you? It's just me, and it's kind of a tomato-y thing. It doesn't really matter because it happens, and and that's all well and good, and he ends up proving himself. I mean, regardless of whether you think that he should have been included in that council or or not, the the plan does pan out. Um. I guess on a first watch, I also misunderstood that big group of troops that Jorah, Grey Worm, and Dario were facing, that that last group where they started to get surrounded, that those were the slave soldiers um, that would flip as soon as they, the hired soldiers had been defeated. Um, I know that primarily the, the way they, they cut away like that, that was to create the tension of, you know, how do these three guys survive these odds against all of these all of these fighters, but uh, it's it turned out to be kind of 
uh, a little bit cheesy to be told then. Oh, yeah, those were the guys. Those were the guys that we said would flip. Um, I don't know. It's awfully convenient uh, for, for TV drama, TV tension. Um, but there was still some good fighting stuff in there. I mean, there were some cool fighting styles. Grey Worm had a cool style. Dario had a good style. Jorah, uh, I will say, as much as I bash him, he fought well. Um, and you've got so much climactic stuff happening in episode nine, uh, that I guess it would be hard to fit any more of the fighting into the episode itself. I know a lot of people like to see the battles, maybe not drawn out to a black water or to a watchers on the wall, full episode kind of level. It's not that uh, big of a battle from what we gather, but, um, maybe some people would have liked to seen a little more. But there's just so much to fit into this episode. Uh, there's just no point. Uh, or there's no time, I guess I should say. Not no point, uh, but no time. And I guess as far as points go, uh, my final point would be about uh, Danny kind of circles around back to the first point I made about uh, Jorah and, and that. And, uh, because right after the battle is over, Jorah comes to her and tells her that they won and... Um, she kind of looks right past him, uh, asking about Dario, who, uh, comes in with the banner of the defeated, right? So, there you go with that. And that pretty much takes care of Daenerys, so, uh, everybody's favorite couple. Yeah, I'm, I'm waiting for the groans. Sam and Gilly, wait a little longer for the groans. Now, let, let me just say that I think it's nice that Gilly calls Sam a wizard way back in season one when Sam said he always wanted to be a wizard and here Gilly thinks that he must be a wizard. I thought that that was fantastic. Um, so just saying, you know, uh, I found some cuteness in the scene, even on a rewatch. I don't know if there's much else to say about the scene itself, except that we know that Sam and Gilly will run into Bran and, and Jojen and Mira and Hodor on on that fort just on the other side of the wall and here we find out how Sam and Gilly are going to get there with that uh, secret passage that uh, Sam the wizard seems to know about because of scribblings on a piece of paper on a piece of parchment uh, so there is Sam uh, Arya let's move on to that um, because Arya is the other side of the equation for the Red Wedding uh, and I guess in the first scene, it's pretty interesting to see how Arya pleads for the, this farmer's life with the Hound. And there's references to Jock and Hagar in there, uh, all kinds of things. But now that we know that she has passed that coin on and said the words, um, do you think that she will find Jockin again? Do you think that she will specifically find him or is she just headed to the place where where he trained? Um, will she, will she ever see him again? What do you think? Um, back to the point of, of, of her not begging the hound to kill the farmer. I mean, is there any way having seen season four that you could see Arya making that same plea now? Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, think of how much the results of this particular episode, the red wedding catapults Arya into a much, much darker place. Now, the killing that she does in the next episode, in the season finale of season three, I, I, I liken that more to a crime of passion 
than anything. You know, she's so destroyed by the fact that her family is is gone. And she wants revenge. We all want revenge. So I, I kind of liken that to almost an excusable killing. Not an excusable killing, but almost an excusable killing. Because, I mean, her entire family, like I said, and house is basically destroyed right before her eyes. Um, but the thing that gets more disturbing is the fact that from this point on, after she gets that first kill under her belt, she starts losing her passion about it. Even when she's getting, um, uh, she's getting needle back with Polliver, there seems to be, you know, a little bit of coolness and a little bit of mockingness in it. Um, not just the, I hate you, you did, you did me wrong. It's, it's more about, uh, you know, that colder, uh, what is it? How is it said? Revenge is a a dish best served cold, right? Um, and then by the time you get with Rorge, she just killing quickly and without mercy and without thought. Um, there doesn't seem to be, um, any passion in it at all. And you finally look at that last scene with the hound in season four where she's just staring at him as he's begging her to show him mercy. And she doesn't. She just walks away. Um, she is in a very dark, dark place. And yes, I'm going to go uh, with a Star Wars reference here. I'm going to go there. What do we hear uh, the whole time? about the dark side of the force, right? Fear leads to anger. Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Um, now, George R. R. Martin's world doesn't follow George Lucas's mantra exactly, um, but I do find it interesting that in this scene where Arya is kind of looking at the twins from a distance, um, which is the second scene in this episode, there is kind of, you can almost kind of see that exact same progression within, within Arya. And it might explain also where some of her darkness comes from in season four. Because in this one, there, there's the progression within the dialogue of the scene that goes from the, the talking about fear to the point where Arya, you know, is angry with the Hound to the point where she basically professes hate to him. They really get into the, the meat of that whole thing about the dark side of the forest and and they're both traveling down that path that path now i i guess for the hound you know his fear and angers and hates those have been boiling up for a while and ultimately of course he ends up suffering uh hate leads to suffering right when he is left behind by Arya in season four i don't want to see what kind of suffering Arya might go through uh possibly as a result of, of her hate, if the old uh, George Lucasism holds true for Arya in George R. R. Martin's world. Um, I, I will offer this one last note about the Arya stuff. The, the change that we see in the Hound himself regarding her is pretty interesting. I guess the first indication of it might be here, uh, because... He he has the, the tolerance of her in the scene with the farmer. But at the end of this episode, he does knock her out. And I guess for me, at that point in the story, I still see it as the hound trying to ensure his ransom. He def- definitely wants his gold. He's already thinking, where else can I take her probably? Um, 
And so, you know, they had start heading for Lysa Aaron. But I think that there is a point in season four where the Hound becomes much more than just her captor. I still think of him as kind of just more or less her captor here. But he, he almost kind of becomes a guardian in a way for her as season four progresses on. And, you know, another terrible father figure. Uh, just like you don't want Jock and Hagar as your father figure. You don't want the Hound as your father figure. I don't even know if you want Yorin as your father figure. But it, nonetheless, the magic would seem to have a plan because she keeps going through all of these dark hands, so to speak, or the hands of these dark people. And the Hound does manage to keep her safe long enough to ultimately uh, find that boat that's taken her to wherever she's headed. Um, probably Bravos, and I, I love Hound Arya scenes. I I hated to see them end in season four. Some of the scenes were very disturbing, um, and many of the disturbing ones are yet to come uh, at the end of this season and into season four. But I did love uh, I did love me some Arya and the Hound, and um, we'll uh, I guess address that. Uh, again next week a little bit where things start really turning dark as far as Arya having to witness the horror of what was going on at the red wedding thank goodness she didn't get into the place because she'd have been dead just like the rest of them uh, the hound literally did save her life by knocking her out probably as much as she hates him for that um but they they ended up uh going on their own way and having their own little adventure during season four so that's it for Arya from one Stark to the next. Let's go to uh, Bran uh, and John at the mill. And really, this is the last storyline uh, of the episode. Um, and I'm putting Bran and John together uh, in this episode for my discussion here because they do end up in the same place. And um, this, of course, is the first of two times that they end up in the same place, right? They'll have another near-miss at Craster's in uh, Season 4. And I don't know, there's something I guess I should ask you is when you saw that second near-miss at Craster's, did part of you hope that they would get it right this time? Um, Since it doesn't really seem like they had much of a chance to do so here, in this particular episode, I mean, Bran was in the tower. They had to remain hidden. They couldn't really help John. They couldn't announce that he was there. But uh, in the season four, of course, uh, Bran has to decide whether or not to announce himself to John, more or less. Did you feel like the showrunners just kind of dovetail the stories in season four to have this situation happen again because they were kind of buying time for both storylines in season four? They had to give John something to do before the white before the uh, episode nine of season four. Um, you had to give Bran something to do before he got to the tree in episode ten of season four. Um, which did you find more impactful? Did you find the season four one more impactful because Bran made an actual choice not to let John know that he was Eric Craster's? Um, some interesting questions for you to answer me. And again, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com or 314-669-1840 or at Winterfell Pod on Twitter. Um, now, this particular storyline is 
just kind of full of information, uh, it, it, as much as it is of action, in my opinion. Uh, and it, it leaves some great thoughts in your head about, I guess, geography and magic, uh, especially in a rewatch. And I guess I'll take care of the geography-wise first, because OSHA calls the area that Brandon and them are in the gift. Uh, and that's, of course, land that is set aside for the Night's Watch so that uh, they can more or less tax people who live there for their services. Uh, for instance, the man that John and the wildlings here are, are chasing, he's a horse breeder for the Night's Watch. Now, the gift is, is somewhat expansive, I guess, southward. Uh, from the wall uh, and I'm sure that at a, there was a time when the Night's Watch was at a greater strength that more area was needed in order to sustain the people of the Night's Watch it doesn't seem so much the case now since the Night's Watch seems uh, like such a small group of people but uh, even uh, Molestown the town that we see in season 4 uh, with the horrors and all of that that uh, um that's where Egret uh, just tells Gilly to shush your baby, um, where Samson's Gilly, I guess. Uh, that is also part of the gift. And I, I don't know. I, that is a heck of a lot closer to Castle Black um, than where we are here. And you would hope so, especially given the amount of time that it seemingly takes the Wildlings to get from here uh, to uh, Castle Black. Um, and it takes them all the way to the end of season four. Um, that's, you know, 10 full episodes from now, uh, that these wildlings are kind of waiting around for Mance to get to the other side of the wall to finally reach the wall. And remember, he's been headed that way since the second episode of this season. So it seems like an awfully long time compared to all of the other things that happened in all of the other storylines. Um, Time passage on this show is weird. I've just grown to accept it. I've grown to accept the fact that Littlefinger can teleport within seconds while it takes Rob, you know, two years to get from, you know, to get two feet. And speaking of that, I mean, Rob has his own good-sized host, just like Mance Raider, and he manages to go from the place where he and Talisa got married all the way to Harrenhal, all the way back to River Run, and then all the way to the Twins, um, basically in half the time that Mance's army makes it to the wall. So it's kind of a little time tomato, I guess, that I have. Um, I'll dedicate that one to DJ Timmy Hines, you know, because we, we like our tomatoes. How about, a, a, a to me, something that is kind of a huge matter that comes out of this episode as far as these two storylines go, and that is warging. Um, warging is when you enter... Um, another body, so to speak, like Bran. Because first, let's look at Bran. He has uh, been able to instinctively be able to warg into summer and, and that before. You know, but for the first time, we see him actually warg into Hodor. And we'll see him do it again, I think it's episode 5 of season 4, um, again, <laughs> a similarity here. It's a, it's the same episode that Brian and John have another near miss. So, um, the big question for me about Bran working into Hodor is, does it bother you that he can do that? I mean, taking over the mind of another human being, um, no, I mean, Hodor is simple minded, but 
that doesn't make his mind any less valuable than yours or mine, right? In terms of being taken over. Um, I will say for that for Brand, both times these are a matter of survival. They don't want to be discovered in the tower here. And in the season four episode, of course, Hodor helps them get away. But still, I, I mean, that's an outrageous power to be able to wield. Don't you don't you think? I, I mean, that is just an incredible power to where you can physically control someone else. And Jojen here says that no works that he knows can do that. Um, so, I mean, is this something that is such a huge power? That's why the Three-Eyed Raven is, is so interested in Bran. Um, are Bran's abilities that unique and extraordinary? Or does Jojen, has Jojen just not... Uh, been exposed to enough other wargs to really know. Because remember, Jojen's just a kid too. I mean, I know he talks like a grandfather, but he is just a kid. Um, I guess you could say possibly. I think I think the thing that scares me most is that anyone might be able to have that ability. Um, I would like to think that if if it if it that brand is special because you don't want just your average warg to have that ability, right? I mean, think how wrongly that could be used. And I, I don't know, just as a crackpot theory, let me throw this out there. Um, have we already seen warging being used in that way? And maybe not necessarily by people. Because we know that it seems like wargs tend to be more from the north, from what we can tell. Jojen and, and Mira uh, are kind of pledged to House Stark, so they're re- relatively from the north, even though they're kind of more from the neck, I guess. Um, the marshes of the neck is where the reeds are from, but um, it's and who knows uh, how many wargs there are to the south. But we haven't met that many. We've met a couple of wildling wargs, and of course they're from north of the wall. But what if this? And here's where I'm going to go way down a rabbit hole and crackpot theory on you. Could the fact that the whites are being raised by the dead by the White Walkers be similar to what Thoros is doing? But they do the White Walkers bidding because the White Walkers are able to control them the same way that Brand can control Hodor. Um, I mean, maybe that's how the White Walkers are controlling these dead people. Um, and, and so they don't, maybe they come back and they would be like a Beric Dondarian having lost a part of themselves or something like that. But the White Walkers just take over their minds. What if that, that's kind of crazy theory, right? Kind of way out there. If that's the case, then if the White Walkers maybe lost the ability to work into their zombie partners, would they be more like Beric? Would they remember uh, part of themselves as opposed to just being seemingly mindless, which is uh, really tough to swallow sometimes to think of the White Walkers as not... Um, you know, as not having a hierarchy or anything. And I think the season four episode where we saw, um, the, the, basically the leaders of the white walkers tends to imply that there is other processes there. So the more there is other processes, the more I'm wondering how much of their, um, their powers aren't just random, right? Because when you have a kind of a faceless, no thoughtless monster, um, then you can say, well, it's just a faceless, thoughtless monster. But now you start to give some indication of culture to this to this group of pe- this group of, well, 
monsters. <laughs> and you come up with the idea that, well, maybe what they're doing isn't all that different than the magic that everybody else is doing, right? Uh, so just something to ponder. That's um, uh, something to think about. I, it, there's, there, there's one other aspect to it, and that is if, if these whites, which are the zombies, if they do have memories... Is that why maybe that white attacked Mormont back in season one? Uh, is it because that white did that? Was that white directed by a white walker or had it regained some of its own thing? And it would have been like just like one of those mutineers that killed Mormont earlier in this season three. Um, maybe just didn't like Mormont. Um, but I, I don't know. I'm going down rabbit holes, so I won't go any further. My main point uh, here, of course, is that warging into humans, bad. Very bad. Bad, bad, bad. Um, and not warging into humans, good. Um, and there's another reason, actually, that warging into humans could be very bad. Uh, and I think that that presents itself on the Orel side of this episode uh, from the John standpoint with his warging because right as John kills Orel he seems to kind of slip into warging mode himself right just like one last time and then all of a sudden his eagle comes down and attacks John so did Orel's consciousness transfer completely to his eagle and even if Orel dies does his consciousness live on in the eagle and if you think that's the case, now think about it from Bran's abilities. If Bran was ever about to die, could he just warg into another human being and be that human being? Um, how dark would that be for whoever he warged into? I mean, think about two people fighting over the same body, struggling for existence within. Um, this is one of the kind of the key reasons that I worry for Bran and his powers, because what if he were to have to do that? And who would sacrifice themselves on his behalf? Mira? I mean, Jojen's gone now. Uh, Hodor? I mean, what could could Brand be, you know, could Hodor to be the Brand other than brute muscle? Um, I, I think that Brand being under the tutelage of this three-eyed raven uh, starting here at the end of season four uh, is, is a scary kind of slope. And we'll have to see how he goes through that because the raven obviously has great power and uh he's been reaching for bran ever since bran's fall from the tower right i mean if bran were to ever reach that same kind of level as the three-eyed raven and since he can work into humans think about how he could affect the story even from a great distance he could be way up there north of the wall Suddenly go into Cersei Lannister, have Cersei Lannister cut Jamie Lannister's neck. I mean, again, rabbit holes. But uh, And I don't want to sit here and say that Bran would become some evil villain or some kind of weird, um, you know, uh, deus ex machina for the story uh, so that things can wrap up nice and neatly when we think something's about to just go terribly wrong. I don't want that. Uh, and I don't think that will happen. But it's just fun to kind of run down these rabbit holes and see if we can find the daylight again. <laughs> uh, like it, dismiss it as rubbish. Uh, I'm often full of rubbish, right? Uh, but I do like using my imagination for rabbit holes. 
uh, more stuff between uh, these storylines here. Another interesting coincidence is that uh, this episode and the Craster episode, where Bran and John have their near misses, after the action happens in both cases, Bran is kind of forced to let go of a member of his family. Now, in this episode, he realizes that he and Rickon have to separate. And, of course, at Craster's, he chooses of letting go of reuniting with John. He can't do it. Um, the the reasoning separating from Rickon is, is stated, and it, it really kind of relates to my other question when I asked is if Rickon is the one last true hope for the Stark line. Um, Bran, more or less, it seems to me, thinks as much since he knows that he's going north of the wall and anything could happen to him. And, of course, we know that nothing has happened to him yet, but there's certainly no guarantee that he's ever going to return. So um, back to, is Rickon the last hope for the Stark line, bloodline, and, uh, you know, the name? Uh, we'll have to see. Um, of course, for first-time viewers, uh, as far as Jon Snow goes, who I haven't really talked about much yet, um, you you found out as to exactly which way he was going to go in terms of the wildlings um, and how he was going to get away from them, more or less. Um, the writing was pretty much on the wall in his conversation with Egret in a prior episode, but he still didn't quite know how he was going to take on 20 other wildlings, right? And we get that answer, of course. And then that kind of sets up, outside of next week, that sets up this really long wait for, I guess, a final Egret John confrontation, which happens what, in season four, episode nine, so ten episodes from now. Um, and it basically boils down to the fact that Egret just can't kill Jon Snow. Um, she had the chance in season three, episode ten, which we'll talk about next week. She does, she, she hurts him, but she has no intention of killing him. And she has the chance, of course, uh, at the wall. And uh, instead of staring at him while he smiles she could have just pulled the bow and, and got him and at least even she probably would have died anyway but at least she would have gotten what she said she wanted um, which I think was more affront than anything she just wanted to hurt him <sighs> she says that John knows nothing right I mean that's her catchphrase but uh, I think that John seems to know how to play a girl long enough to stay alive right seems that way um I will say this also about John. There's something that I caught on a rewatch that I didn't catch the first time around uh, when I watched this episode back when season three first aired. Uh, and I, I don't know why I missed it, um, but John hitting his sword against a stone, alerting the horses so that that would alert the horse uh, breeder. Um, I don't know why I didn't catch that before. I know you're asking, how the heck did you miss that, Matt? Uh, honestly, I, I, I don't know how I missed it, but I did silly me. Right. So, but, uh, it was cool to, to kind of get that last little bit click in. Cause I don't know. I think there was always a part of me before I watched this episode again that said, well, how did the horse breeder get away in the first place? And there you go. That explains it. Um, and I guess finally, I will also say this, it, it kind of seems a shame and I'll go back to Brandon Ricken for this final point. Um, that Art Parkinson was kind of underutilized in his role as Rickon uh, in this series. Now, granted, there's not a lot for Rickon in the books. Um, there's not a lot uh, 
for there wasn't a lot for Rickon in a television show. And I guess that's according to, you know, whatever the showrunners felt like they were doing in terms of the spirit of the book or what have you. Um, but in this goodbye scene with Bran, he's a pretty good little actor. Um, actually, I liked his performance better than I did uh, Isaac Hempstead Wright's performance uh, in terms of this scene. But, um, you know, I, and I, I felt like it, Parkinson did a great job. He did, he did a, a good job. And, of course, I'll, I will definitely miss Art Parkinson uh, not smashing walnuts anymore. Poor guy. I liked the walnut smashing. It was always a fun little jab to throw into the show. Um, maybe there's hope. Maybe someday we'll see Rick and Inosha again. Oh, maybe not. Who knows? Who knows? And I guess that's it for this episode. That's all really I have to say. Again, uh, very emotional. And I know I didn't, I kind of skipped over addressing any of that. But granted, I think we all know that that's there. I don't think there's any, really any need to rehash that. Um, lots of rabbit holes I went down today. But uh, I like that the episode affords me a chance to go down rabbit holes. So that was good too. Uh, brilliantly directed uh, and acted and you know uh, scored everything was just uh, fabulously done in this episode so I'll be back with uh, some final thoughts about the podcast in just a second Okay, thanks for once again listening to the podcast and my monologue rambling. This edition of the monologue rambling brought to you by The Film List. That's The Film List on iTunes, a great podcast by Heath Snow, our good buddy of the podcast here, and brought to you by The Joffrey of Podcasts, our good friend Bubba. I want to give a shout out to him and to his cohort, Catfish. They also do a, what, uh, the, the Strain Got Your Milk, I think, is the, the Strain podcast name. <sighs> yeah, just spending the last part of this episode just shamelessly plugging other podcasts. That's what I'm doing. But no, thank you for joining me. And if you have any feedback regarding this episode or any Season 3 episodes, especially Episodes 6 through 10, please get that feedback to me by no later than February 2nd, 2015. That's just a couple of weeks away if my calculations are correct, since I'm recording this way back in 2014. Um, I will include any feedback you submit to me by that deadline in our special feedback episode, which we will have uh, two weeks from now, I guess. If you submit a written review of the podcast in iTunes or Stitcher by that same date, February 2nd, 2015, you qualify for a drawing to win either your choice of Blu-rays or DVDs for Season 4, which you will get from me for free. Lovely. Anyone who has submitted iTunes reviews up until that date, and that goes all the way back to the beginning of the podcast, to the very first review I got, you're all included in that drawing. So don't be mad saying, uh, it's just now? No. Everybody gets a chance to win. Um, and don't forget that if you are a book reader and you're listening to this podcast... Uh, a BR, as Axel Foley likes to call us, then we are doing our tandem read of George R. R. Martin's fourth and fifth books, A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, during this hiatus as well. Uh, 
And as for NBR, Axel Foley, uh, he is going to tell you how to contact me with any feedback you have right now. One episode of our Season 3 Rewatch left, and we will see you next time on Podcast Winterfell. Thanks. You've been listening to Podcast Winterfell. Find the podcast blog at podcastwinterfell.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter, twitter.com slash winterfellpod. Contact the podcast either by email, podcastwinterfell at gmail.com, or by calling the listener line, 314-669-1840. Thank you.